Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. A space for architecture, the work and vision of O'Donnell and Toomey. Earlier this month, Irish architects Sheila O'Donnell and John Toomey were presented with the Royal Gold Medal for Architecture by REBA, the Royal Institute for British Architects. The award is one of the most prestigious in international architecture, given to a person or group judged to have made a significant influence on the advancement of architecture. Previous recipients include Frank Gehry, Norman Foster and Frank Lloyd Wright, and the only other Irish recipients were Michael Scott and engineer Peter Rice, both of whom we've discussed on this programme. I'm joined tonight by Sheila O'Donnell and John Toomey, who chose to use the old Irish form of Ogle of Birch, a conversation or discourse between two people in their presentation lecture to Reba. We'll talk about that concept and the content of that presentation in London later. But can I start with a quote from your recent book, Space for Architecture, the work of O'Donnell and Toomey? You write, John, the story has to start where the work starts, with the studio. How... Does the story begin in the studio? How how does the work start there? Um, Sheila and I work together. I think we work in conversation. We always start off a project by trying to find a, another way of describing it other than the way it is described, if you know what I mean. We try and make it up again from first principles. And I suppose all work starts with a sketch, in our case, usually with a pencil sketch. And then that gets tested. We have colleagues in the studio who are used to taking our outline drawings and trying to make some sort of rational sense of them, then pass them back to us for another turn over. I think probably when I'm thinking about our studio practice, it is a iterative process. It's a trial and error process. And only after a few goes do we feel we get to a point where we are even beginning to hone it into shape. If that sounds like an old-fashioned practice, it probably is. It's the way we were educated in our student days and our office feels like a studio. Sheila, in starting a commission, for instance, for a new building, after looking, measuring, imagining, and this was balancing practical things like space and budgets, what's the process then to the finished building. And and I presume that that may vary and the length of time will vary hugely depending on, on the scale of the project. Yeah, so it certainly does vary. And um, while John has said that it starts in the studio, in a way it starts before the studio and there is a process which which for us is very important actually, which is the bit before we start designing, which is the kind of collecting together of all the factors that will influence what makes a building design. And some of them are obvious, like understanding the brief, looking at the site. But we tend to look at the site in as wide a way as possible. So not just at its physical dimensions and characteristics, but its history and its social aspects of how it's used, how it has been used, how it's perceived by people locally. And I think before we start drawing or making models, all of those factors are brought to bear. So, you know, buildings are very complex. There's so many different aspects in making a building. And also, I suppose, architecture is the art form that most affects everybody's lives. So we really do feel there's a sort of responsibility to bring in as many factors and as many opinions as possible, which is slightly veering away from your question. But it's not really because I think there's t- there's quite a lot of time we find in the early stages of making building projects, which some people may even think doesn't seem like technical work because it is an assimilation, what we call a kind of immersion in the aspects and the factors which will eventually lead to the building project. And but, I presume a great deal of time given to thinking and, and discussing and also referencing, looking back at the work you've done before, because again, something I was struck by in that talk called Space for Architecture to Reba was where you talked about this, the continuity of your vision, how one thing influences the yeah. previous one. Yeah, and it's and uh, well, I spoke about that in the lecture, about how we almost hoard things, you know, and some of it is our own previous buildings. And so the work you might do in analysing and starting, for example, the design of a school, which is a very 
clear, brief, very repetitive set of classrooms, all the same, certain kind of context, that that, that leads you into thinking about so many things about type, about education, about repetition, about neighbourhood and community. And then those things stay with you and become part of the battery of things with which you approach the next project. So even if the next project's about something completely different, there is a kind of sense that having done one kind of building will always affect the next one. So things are not simply straightforwardly. We're not starting with a new page every day where you feel we're building on what we've done, but maybe even more importantly, we're building on what other people have done. The rebirth citation uh, mentions, Sheila, your quiet studied rationalism and uh, <laughs> alongside what they call uh, John's fluent rhetorical constructionism. Do you recognise those qualities in your individual approach to your practice <laughs> or or is that again other people looking at what you've done and arriving at this conclusion? A bit of both I'd say. I mean it might be I would say if you went back 20 years or something you might find that's true and the person who wrote that probably knew us first 20 or 25 years ago I noticed that when he read out his citation the night we got the medal, he had sort of merged it and applied both descriptions to both of us. Which is probably the the way it has evolved. It has evolved, but there probably still is an extent to which I sometimes uh, act as a sort of calming influence. Because we do, the way we work is that we pass sketches and drawings back and forward between us, but also that we often sit down for long periods to discuss things. And I possibly might be the person who tends to pull things back in the direction of rationalism. Innately analytical person. A deeply analytical. (laughs) (laughs) Do you, John, recognise that fluent rhetorical constructionism in in yourself? You know, maybe in some idealised sense, I I would love to be fluent. It means you have to practise every day. And I do like thinking in, in general conceptual terms. I'm a kind of divided person in a way because I I particularly like crafting and finishing and the feel of a constructed world, you know, the feel of how things are put together. I, I, I love the physicality of buildings. But at the beginning, I, I think I love the uh, open dream space of, of anything, everything you've ever read, everything you've ever seen can go into the pot. So probably I do recognise that description. But it doesn't matter. I mean... Um, we somehow managed to work it out between us and um, so it goes along. Yeah, we managed to agree on it. But, you know, I think that life and processes and things you do do sort of change and adjust it. So, say, in the last 10 or 12 years, I've started using watercolour as part of our work in particularly in the early stages of projects to kind of think things out conceptually or in a in a kind of almost abstracted way. And I would say that has changed the way that I work a bit, which veers away from that rationalism, maybe into something a bit more speculative about what might be um, without worrying about the, the sort of practicality of it. Something so, looser that, that will yeah, take so, shape. So I think that, interestingly, you know, sort of work processes and methods and media that you use gradually adjust how you think as well as how you work. You, you said in, in, in the lecture in London that... that Architecture by its very nature accommodates and maybe contains many other aspects of human creativity and ingenuity. And I know that your own work has been informed by literature, by poetry, prose writing, sculpture, photography, and by what you call affinities. Tell me a little, Sheila, about that concept of inspirational affinities and how they have and do inspire your work. I mean, I think that you mentioned that we have, in some cases, very particularly and specifically being inspired by other works. For example, Seamus Heaney's poem, The Annals Say, was a direct influence on the idea for the Glucksmann Gallery in Cork and probably the works of lots of sculptors and other poets and even films influence our work. But where we came to mark that and note it ourselves was when we were invited to make a contribution to the Venice Biennale in 2012 under the theme Common Ground. We were asked to make an installation in the International Exhibition. We were really interested in this idea of common ground and we thought that particularly maybe being based here in Ireland where it's a sort of small society and a small community that our experiences that those overlaps between the different art forms are well certainly in our work or in our lives are are very real that there are lots of overlaps so we felt that our common ground 
extended beyond the field of architecture into all these other fields. And we decided to make an installation which included a kind of uh, showcase or um, an, an installation with, in a case, the works of you know, the poet Seamus Heaney, Tim Robinson, the writer and cartographer. Sculptors like Janet Malarney. I mean, our, our theme for our exhibition was Vessel. We were thinking about Vessel as container of space, but also as a like a boat in the sea, you know, like a blood vessel. There's something of circulatory aspects to it. So we asked people to respond to the theme of vessel. Janet Malarney made a very beautiful aluminium cast of a body part that enshrined this idea of embodiment, I suppose. Uh, Mary Foley made some beautiful memory boxes or boxes which recall Rilke's poetry that we have this interest in common with Mary about Rilke's elegies. Dorothy Cross gave us a photograph which was particularly relevant to Tim Robinson's writing about Aaron. Architects who we know made drawings specially for the occasion. And then then we introduced these various people to each other and we put them side by side. So we were looking for them to kind of cook a bit off each other. For us, it was extremely concretely in contact with the way that we were working. But in the context of the architecture biennale, it opened it up a bit to a wider audience. Was it possible, for instance, to see or imagine how some of those objects or texts might have found their way into the shaping of of some of your own buildings? Um, Did you attempt to, for instance, to show that or explain it? I'm not sure if we did do that as much as to put them in their... uh, in their cases beside each other and you could see a conversation between we put a 17th century map of Rome in relation to one of Tim Robinson's maps to talk about continuity of cartography and also to talk about what maps mean in an architect's mind you know finding your way I think we brought, wanted to bring them with us to to spew it all out and to say look how interesting the world is and to take architecture out of being a narrowly defined topic I mean, one of the reasons we called our book Space for Architecture was a kind of call to, was an appeal to the heart to say that uh, architecture, of course, deals with space. um, But Space for Architecture was to try to invite people to open their minds. If if you can have an opinion, if you can be in a book club and discuss novels and if you can come out of the cinema and have an opinion about a, a picture you've just seen, then why not think about architecture? Because when you travel to a country that you don't understand... You read it through its architecture. Architecture is the evidence of human intelligence. It's the physical traces of our culture. Everybody knows what it is. It hasn't stopped. Mm-hmm. The way we practice now is sympathetic and continuous with all of the time of architecture. I think one of the missions of our public life is to try to draw attention to the poetic aspects and the public realm aspects and the cultural aspects of architecture. Something you said, again, I was very taken by it in that talk, was you said new and old are not really adequate or relevant terms to describe the purposeful vitality of architecture. And I thought that phrase, purposeful vitality, was marvellous because in a sense it suggests that we can link the old and new and maybe transform the way we see both. Uh, Yeah, what I was trying to draw attention to there was this concept of the living present, you know, especially in Britain, but in lots of places, there's a lot of rhetoric about the difference between the new and the old. And some people think that there needs to be a contrast and some people think it's a problem. But I don't have a problem putting my Virginia Woolf novel in the same shelf as my Tobias Woolf novel um, or perhaps beside a Vincent Woods book, if you know what I mean. I don't mind putting things that aren't connected beside each other. They get on with each other because they know about each other. Robert Frost says when you come to write a poem, all you need to know is all the poems that have ever been written. Um, <laughs> and I, I think that it's a false, it's a false um, drama to say that a building is interesting because it is new. Because, I mean, face up to it, it's only going to be new for a very short time and it'll be old for a lot longer. You know, and if people had always uh, employed that idea that the new has got to be in contrast to the old, you know, we would have a very cacophonous world around us. So I think the idea that any building you make is in the company of buildings made at every other time and they should be able to coexist and be comfortable is important. But I think that point about people travelling to foreign cities and what they're doing is looking at buildings, but those people wouldn't ever think, most of them wouldn't think to look at contemporary architecture with one or two exceptions, which we probably all know about, like 
Bilbao or something. Which, But beyond that, people don't tend to think of contemporary architecture in the same way as representing a society, uh, representing an urban sense of how uh, people live. And I suppose we think that's uh, one of our responsibilities is maybe to try and make buildings which do speak out to the world beyond just the confines of their own site, which make public space, which have an engagement with the public realm, obviously depending on what the function of the building is, if it's appropriate or not. But I think that we are really just trying to build the world, which is a, which is a tall order. But, you know, that is what our role is, to, to where we are asked to make a building, that we're just making a small piece of the world in which everybody is living. And then it sh- and it should feel like it belongs there. Your, your approach to architecture, I presume, has been honed by the decades of involvement. But I wonder if, if your time in London as young architects was a particularly formative one in, in, in arriving at the point where you are now, the kind of expansiveness of a world city like London. Did that give you, you know, the potential to see even Ireland in and the possibilities in Ireland in a new way? Well, even just thinking about London, I mean, I think we we're both very, very attached to London. I mean, we were there, we were quite young when we were there. And um, I think a lot of the people who influenced us and a lot of the people that whose work we studied seemed to be in London at the time that we arrived there. It was like the names that you knew from your reading became, you know, were made flesh, if you know what I mean. And we felt we were, I think, even at the time when we were there in the late 70s, early 80s, we felt fortunate to be in a place where the culture was so active, the architecture culture was so active. Um, Mind you, lots of things were happening around then in our lives because we were getting terribly interested in the European city and European cinema, even the concept of European cinema was something very um, electrifying. My memory of London is working very, very long hours in the studio and then going to a lot of late night movies with Sheila. That seemed to be in the, the pattern of our life. And somehow I think the feeling of London as a meeting point, a world, uh, most of our friends seem to be from not London, if you know what I mean, when we were there. London is a crossing place. And who, who were the architects then that, you know, when you say that it, it was this crossroads where so much met, you know, who, who were the, the names that, that spoke to you at that time and, and maybe helped to shape what, what you in turn have, have shaped? Well, I mean, our big break, I suppose, or our introduction eventually into London was through James Sterling's office. I mean, I was lucky enough straight out of college to get a job with Sterling, who at that time was a certainly a leading architect in the world and he had a very small office and and then I think because Sheila was studying at the RCA that that widened our uh, net a little bit. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is that it was a time of recession, I think. So there wasn't actually much building going on. So a lot of the activity of which excited us was discussion, lectures, meetings. Mm. A lot of the people who've since become very famous building architects were not building at all then. So... So a lot of it was a cultural discussion and people who maybe wouldn't even be architects who influenced us. There was a man called Peter Cook who who ran amazing lecture series and discussion events. Ram Koolhaas and Elias Angelis, who Ram Koolhaas later went on to be what is now known as a star architect. All those people were not building but were talking and discussing the city. Italian rationalism, Aldo Rossi and a lot of his contemporaries were very active, were writing. So there was a lot of theoretical texts being discussed, being written about. And a lot of it was just that shift from maybe having been educated in Ireland where architecture was more influenced by American practice and finding that now the discussion was about Europe, about the contemporary European city, but also historic uh, European cities and how they might influence how we would move forward. So it was kind of a shift from one kind of certainty because the better architecture that was happening in Ireland when we were students, I suppose, was stuff like the building we're in now, the RTE building, the Scott Allen Walker's Mies influence building. Let's say it was a sort of American campus model. Yeah, And then when we came back from London, we brought all this European integrated city theories and 
examples in our heads. Did did the European cinema you were seeing at the time as well go into that influence? You know, somebody like Fellini, who has yeah. showed shows us Rome old and new in the most extraordinary way. You know, was that part of we made the in our first project? Uh, we made this big curved wall in the Irish Film Centre. This big curved yellow wall. And I remember when we were sketching that, I mean, th- th- there's a moment in Amarcourt where they all go out in a boat in the fog to wait for a liner to come by and then the liner just just goes by. Uh, there's a feeling of awe. And I remember thinking, if we put this big curved wall in the film centre, it'll just glide in like like the liner in Fellini's Amarcourt. So, sure. <laughs> but it wouldn't be. I mean, although even the idea of the author, film director following the films of Vim Vendors or... Or even th- those rural Italian ones like the yeah. Taviani brothers and the, even making us look again at the traditional farm buildings in the Irish landscape. Compared, I mean, obviously they were buildings made about terrible poverty in the Italian rural places, but actually they also were an exposition of amazing uh, tradition of how Italian rural buildings are built. So... Yeah, all of it was is feeding into a kind of sense of place and culture, the relationship between place and culture. I remember being once at some discussion forum in London. Somebody asked me, if you hadn't been an architect, John, you know, what would you have been? Something different. You know, what else could you have been? And I said, well, actually, you probably always had a hankering about the potential of being a film director. And the person said, oh, I see, you've chosen exactly the same job, you know, to be your alternative <laughs> because projects last about five years, they need to coordinate a lot of people, they have to be led by somebody who has a vision. And then you realise, oh, I see, OK, yeah, back to architecture then. Why did you choose to come back to, to Dublin when you did? There well, is attached to some part of your lower spine, there is an elastic band, I think, that is always, you know, is always pulling you, especially when you relax a little bit. There's a kind of a pull for home. There's also a feeling that as you're getting deeper involved in the place you are, we, I was working in Starling's office for a long time and there was, a, you know, there was promotion in the air and there's probably a moment after five or six years in a place where you decide you're either going to commit to that place or, or, or clear out. What is it that happens when two people meet in a pub in a foreign city and one says to the other, will you ever go back? And <laughs> So you know, uh, we have to go back. Yeah, that's true. I th- actually, I think we went there always thinking we'd go back. So we were always kind of pacing ourselves. And, but on the other hand, really, really loved being in London. But, you know, towards, I mean, I talked about the positive aspects of the culture of architecture that was happening there. But also towards the end of our time, the interest in the historic European city led to a movement which was not so attractive, which is, I suppose, became known as postmodernism, which was when a lot of architects started applying the motifs of historic buildings in a rather shallow way to the surface of work. And we, I think, began felt this was beginning to be quite prevalent in London and we didn't feel any sympathy with that because we thought, well, hold on, you know, we've been to Italy, we've looked at these amazing buildings, but it's not the, the detailed motifs that interest us, it's the whole thinking about, you know, the form of the building and the landscape, its use, how it relates to place, how it relates to sun and wind and light. And we don't want to go, you know, rubbing little cornices and sticking them on the front of buildings. So partly we came back to get away from that. And actually then when we came back, we spent, I'd say, a year or two really looking at Irish vernacular buildings and at the amazing Palladian houses there are in Ireland, which are much more simple and stripped back even than the than the English ones. So I think in a way it was, we, afterwards we realised it was almost like a sort of cleansing process of coming back, going back to basics, looking at what it is about Ireland and buildings in the Irish landscape, what's particular about them, what can we learn from them that's different from what's happening in other places. And and did you did you learn a lot? I know that when you're coming back, you, you've said that a, a friend said <laughs> half jokingly to you, you go back and, and change the face of, of Irish architecture. I wonder, did you, in a sense, half set out to or hope to to help do that? Uh, by, partly by looking at what was here. Oh, no, I, I, definitely. I mean, I, I, such a misguided um, mission. I, I, I think we spent a lot of our early career, you know, chasing looking for the soul of Irish architecture and chasing it down boreens. Um, it even sounds to me now like a very suspect activity. We were looking for identity, I suppose. But I'll tell you 
one advantage of going looking for something, even if you're looking either in the wrong place or for the wrong thing. But what happens to you is you learn how to look. And I, re I realise now, you know, in reflection, that it's the looking, what, uh, what a writer might call close noticing, if you know what I mean. I think it, it's that that we gathered and it's that that gives us our approach, our own approach to work. So funnily, maybe it is that you don't find what you're hmm. after, but and probably it's a foolish and uh, too, too bordered kind of approach to inquiry. But certainly by slowing down, paying attention and just being careful to try to understand what you see, you, you find you, you sharpen your eyes and you widen your mind. But and probably now that's what we like most. You know, I think we have this uh, interest in what I might call the elevated ordinary. We're not really looking for the monumental, um, bombastic, or even possibly impressive things. We're looking for the things that m that make the differences. You know, you know a convenient bench uh, at a street corner, or a window seat, or the projection of a the bay window at Rothhouse out over the street in Kilkenny, or um, or the depth of a threshold and the feeling of change of heart that you get when you enter a different room just to be more aware of the moments that are actually the stuff of architecture. And the stuff of architecture as well, maybe sometimes as simple as the mm. right stone, a shell. <laughs> uh, and yeah. there's, a, I think, a few red stones on a white beach in Connemara echoed something of, of yeah. the building that, building that has been so well received in London, the, the Student Accommodation Centre for the yeah. London School of Economics. I mean, I've probably always been inclined to collect stones or shells on beaches. And, you know, for a long time, I thought it was a parallel and disconnected activity. And then I sort of realised eventually that it is, it kind of in some way is part of the our work. And it might have been when we started working in Connemara on the um, Letter Frack Furniture College, when we were trying to make new buildings that worked with, but to extent did stand apart from the old industrial school. But there... We were thinking about how to make colour and material and I was picking up these stones and trying to replicate the very matter and texture of the stone and the way the building was made so it would feel it belonged to the place. So I was doing that and then when I started doing water, using watercolours I would paint the stones and the shells which is a way of claiming them and abstracting them in a way and fixing them in my mind or in our minds and then the forms of them start to influence the work. But... Yes, well, we entered this competition for the London School of Economics and um, following the interview, we just went on holidays and I was walking on a beach which has mostly white stones and these three triangular red stones kind of jumped out of the ground at me and I picked them up and made some paintings of them and they were, I thought, exactly the shape of the competition entry we had just submitted for the Student Centre and which we then heard we won and... So that was kind of odd. So it was like the gap between noticing and selecting things and, and making and designing things seemed to kind of disappear. And suddenly these stones were as if we had designed them, but in fact I had found them. I was just going to follow what Sheila was saying only by saying that I think our ideal is, is this feeling that instead of designing something, it might feel as if we discovered it, you know, like... Maybe our school in Ranala feels as old as the, or possibly older than the old buildings that are around it, as if it emerged out of its place. But Describe that, that building for me, because I, I, I know it has been really well received by both uh, the, the students who, who have, use it and, and by the public in London. It's a, it's a hugely popular building. Yeah, in the student centre at the LSE, if you're trying to think about a response-based architecture, that poor intensely work, hard-working building at the LSE is absolutely fixated in relation to response to the beautiful uh, knuckle-point convergence of medieval streets that meet at its entrance or to the demanding rigours of London rights to light that require buildings to step back out of each other's um, angles of sunlight or the extraordinary uh, demands of the pressures that are on such a complicated, historically laden and culturally complex situation on a street corner. I guess in that building, uh, we were trying to let the building be formed by the 
forces around itself, uh, invitationally, so to speak, to l let the building yield to everything that is coming at it and then to make a spatial response that has this strong presence which emerges out of it being lenient. It's a resistance and it's a lenience. To me, it feels like the culmination of a series of projects that we were working through from the Irish Language Centre in Derry through the Lyric Theatre in Belfast that the vectors of external forces can be felt to bring alive the otherwise what you might expect to be static form. So it's not static form anymore, it's kind of responsive form. It's a busy building, but... Yeah. <laughs> and it's also, I mean, I think the interesting thing about buildings is there's so many ways to describe them because they are very complex organisms. But, you know, there's also another really strong aspiration was to make it feel relaxed and easy to move through inside. And although it's a very vertical building because the site's quite small, we really wanted people to find they could kind of wander in and move up through the stairs, which winds slowly around the lift shaft and find themselves you know, on the fourth floor without having really realised that they had made the effort to walk upstairs. So we wanted to feel kind of easy and relaxed. So those are two ways of looking at it, the external way John's talking about, the way you move through it. But then, of course, in reality, it's a building with a really complex brief with lots of different kinds of spaces and very rigorous technical requirements about acoustic separations. There's a huge disco in the basement where, you know, students' um, music is played at incredibly loud levels while there are offices and a prayer centre and there's also a pub and a cafe. So I think part of the fun of architecture is is achieving and satisfying all those technical and spatial requirements almost as if that was obvious that you could just do that and then it becomes about how it relates to the street outside or how people move through it. I think we were trying to relish the complexities and then to seek actually quite a background simplicity out of that rather than trying to iron out complexities in order to push through with a single-minded vision. But when I say response-based design, I think we're interested in how our work works with its surroundings, including all of the ways you can describe those non-physical aspects of its surroundings. And we, we, we've talked to, on this programme about uh, the Lyric in Belfast and, mm. and that, that wonderful building sitting there on that slope and holding somehow so much of, of the past and now and the future. Do you go back to buildings? I mean, do you go back to the Lyric, for instance, and look at plays and and look at what you've done and relish the moment and maybe sometimes wonder if you might ever have done it differently. Yeah, we actually, we do go to the Lyric. We go there quite a lot. I'd say we go to almost all the plays in the Lyric. So one of the great things about doing that project, apart from the architecture, is that it showed us how close Belfast and Dublin are to each other. And so we quite often just drive up in the evening, go to a play and drive home again. Yeah, I mean, that, I suppose that was a great project because it was a long road. We travelled with the clients and they were very good clients and you know we all learned a lot along the way including the brief being completely rewritten after we were appointed and the project being redesigned while staying exactly the same in its spirit and in the way that it works and I think they have become good friends in a not you know, not in a personal way but in a kind of institutional way we're sort of friends of the Lyric Theatre. As we and are actually, I would say with the Glucksman Gallery in Cork, or even with the Ranala School or the Irish Film Centre. Yeah. We probably have had some good fortune to find ourselves working in fields where our interest lies in any case, or maybe, maybe you are what you eat or something. But we have had this deep relationship with some certain buildings, which seems to go on and which seems to rich in our own understanding. So in the Glucksman, every time you go, the whole building is different because the exhibition has been laid out with another concept from a different curator. And it proves itself more resilient the more often it's tested. And with the lyric, because of the staging, you know, you can go to intimate performances, you can go to readings, or you can go to full-on uh, great pieces of theatre. And in the case of the lyric, I think it's very beautiful to see the, it being taken into the stride or into the family of Belfast life itself, you know. I love just watching the flow of the audience through the spaces and seeing how people feel so at home in it. I presume you're very careful about what commissions you you go for, you know, what you think about doing, both both in Ireland and internationally. 
partly maybe in, in terms of scale, but I, I presume as well in, in pushing the boundaries of what you might do. Yes, I mean, it's a kind of two-way process because certain kinds of people come to us, I suppose, based on what we've done. But actually, I would say that we don't always know in advance. In example, the student centre in LSE, John had no interest in entering that competition. He thought, that, that doesn't sound interesting. I don't want to do that. Uh, on the other hand, I did think it sounded interesting, but we still didn't really quite know what that would be, what kind of building type it is. So... I think we often say that we're generalists, not specialists. And in a way, I think we're kind of interested in someone asking us to do something that we didn't expect to be asked. So while we are we are careful of what we select to do, I think we're very open to being asked the unexpected question because I think that's actually what we are ready for. That's what our expertise, our expertise is in taking a brief, thinking about it, thinking about a place and giving a new reading of how something might be. So sometimes it's more interesting to be asked a question you've never been asked before than it is to ask the same, answer the same old one. So while we've done a lot of cultural and educational buildings and really enjoy doing that, we're also, you know, we'd be very interested to think about the workplace or offices or, you know, those, which is something we haven't, well, other than small scale within other buildings, we haven't done that. So I I think... We could raise one small squeak of complaint because at the moment... Um, how clients commission projects, I mean institutional clients, is that they look for evidence, track record, often limited by, say, in the last three years or in the last five years, and they look for evidence that the architect might have completed three to five examples of the project they have in mind within the last three to five years. Well, by that definition, we wouldn't pre-qualify to to be able to design any of the buildings that we have designed. And that's a curious situation. So if I could put forward the contrary opinion is, or the contrary observation is that every single building that we have designed, including the ones that have won national and international awards, each of those was us doing it for the first time. So maybe a better way to select an architect would be to find someone who's never done it before and see what they come up with. <laughs> because that is, as Sheila says, that is what the training of an architect I mean, that the education of an architect is not to come out with ready-made solutions to, or, uh, to previously anticipated problems. The training is to be able to respond uh, with an equipped mind, uh, to be able to respond to the unforeseen. So when we did the Irish Film Centre, we didn't know what a film centre was. We had to help invent it, and so on and so on. So in a, in a way, isn't this a tension between officialdom and the creative person, you know, the, the architect who who may not on paper have the experience, but of course they, they have the possibility to make anything uh, and, mm. and make it new and make it well. Oh, no, I would hesitate there because actually the creativity... Not every architect. No, but the, no, the creativity of a client shouldn't be disregarded. You, I mean, it isn't, a, it isn't a one-way street of architects against the wind, if you know what I mean. The successful works are the ones where people collaborate on a vision and... We have have had the good fortune and we have witnessed some visionary clients who I would say are creative. They don't have to do architecture. There are clients who can see that, you know, if you've designed a theatre well, that you'd be well able to design a student centre for them and they don't need you to have designed a student centre already. For example, the LSE clients were very good in that way. But I think the problem John has identified is that now most institutions like universities don't make those assessments themselves. They hire in some kind of project manager who doesn't really, it's not their project. So they just feel they have to stick by some kind of tick box criteria. And so a a creative client is also probably a client who takes responsibility for what they're doing and gets personally involved. Well, I mean, we are not here complaining about this on our own behalf, actually, because we have, as you know, we have been fortunate. But there is a whole lot. There is a great strength in, in the younger generation of architects in Ireland who are blocked off from accessing public work by that criterion. And it is not justified. That young generation of architects, I mean, you, you've both been very involved in, in the teaching end of things over, over the years. Mm. How important is that for you both in, in terms of, of your own practice and also of looking to the future and helping to foster the future in, in, in terms of the built environment? Well, it's true that our, part of our contribution, our social contribution is through teaching, but we're not doing it to foster the future. I mean, the great value of teaching is that it keeps you yourself fresh because you've got to be able to not just put forward a position, but try to unpack the background that allows that position to be held 
and therefore you have to question your position on a weekly basis. So I would say that um, it's reciprocal, the benefit, and a lot of it might go our way. We probably, I see Sheila smiling, we probably both actually still like students, which not everyone who teaches does. Um, We like the refreshment that mm. comes from that inquiry, that inquiring mind. But I think there is, I mean, just going back to earlier things we discussed, there is, we have a strong belief that there is a culture and a discipline that is architecture that is worth discussing and worth talking about and worth continuing. So I think being involved in teaching is a way of saying we must we must continue to feed this culture, we must continue to discuss it and to elaborate it and to expand on it and to respect it as as some as a discipline which needs to be fed. Um, so I think teaching has been really important and it's it's really interesting and you know it's it's very it's very good fun. I mean it's very positive to be involved with the younger generation and to be surprised, which we always are, by the things, the amazingly creative work that students come up with, um, who very often exceed your expectations and do how, things you How did expect. you begin teaching? How did, how did that process start for you after your own studies? Actually, you know, we've been teaching as long as we've been talking about architecture. I mean, I think when I was a student at UCD, I had the lucky experience of also occasionally being part-time teaching at Bolton Street in its first year. And then as soon as we were qualified, I remember going from London up. Sheila's first boss gave me a job teaching at at the Macintosh um, School of Art. So I used to go up to Glasgow on the train. And when Sheila came back to Dublin, she came back to teach out of... Yeah, it was really when I came back to Dublin that I... I, It's impossible to extrapolate it, I think. I think our our first year tutor, Shane de Blackham, who was running the fourth year in UCD, invited me when I came back to Dublin to teach with him and... I've been teaching in UCD ever since. And I presume at, at points along the way, economic necessity as well, that it, it, would, it would certainly help to, yeah. to bolster. Yeah, um, that is true to an extent, though in the, for quite a few years we were teaching on a kind of non-contract, very basic level of remuneration from the university. Yeah, I mean, and actually probably for a lot of creative people, it's good to have something, you know, in certain lean years, it has been really good to know that teaching is there as a kind of steady activity. I think probably it helped our, I mean, if we did, we probably did have an ambition all our lives to look towards making public works rather than significant public works, if you know what I mean. And we've had the good fortune to be able to, at least to some extent, to follow that, even if they are at a small scale. And teaching probably has allowed us to do that, I would say. And it also has allowed us to stamp out the intellectual territory, you know, and um, fill out our our minds. Tell me about a current project, ongoing project, the university in in Budapest, and uh, what seems to be a, a fascinating challenge in terms of again making making a mark in in a very old and particular city. I'm just recalling we, when we went to the planning office to the city architects. Uh, office to present the design for that university. It's in the World Heritage Site in beautiful Naderutza, which is one of the grandest streets in downtown Pest near the Cathedral of St. Istvan. So it's right in the historic centre of the city. And we presented our project with courts and passageways and a feeling of how we were reading the city. And we don't speak one word of Hungarian and we'd never been there before, and, but we had got ourselves totally uh, involved in the city. Anyway, there was a short kind of interruption, short silence, and the city architect leant across the table to Sheila and said, I see you have fallen in love with our city. <laughs> and yeah. so we had, I mean, it's such a beautiful place. I mean, that that was one of those cases where we realised that, you know, having spent so long trying to look at Irish architecture and building that we had learned how to look at places. So when we went to Budapest, we were just really fascinated by its scale and its structure and it's very different from here. You know, it's historic streets but they're big courtyard buildings and we really enjoyed that chance to think about a totally different urban type in a very historic context. I mean, what it's a small postgraduate university and the project really is to rehouse the whole university in this um, site which is a collection of six adjoining buildings in the city two of which are empty sites or sites which we've been able to demolish the buildings on to make new buildings and the other four are reworkings of existing buildings and then it's about making connections and routes through. It's In a way, it's a bit like the Irish Film Centre multiplied by 
I don't know, 20, 20 or something. Mm. So it's so it's some of the issues are the same. It's about taking historic buildings, about making movement and routes and um, courtyards through them. And because the university has no campus at the moment and it's in a set of adjoining but disconnected buildings. So people are coming down the stairs and out the front door of one building and going back in next door. So we're a lot of what we're doing is acupuncture or, you know, maybe sort of small, small scale dentistry, you know, making little gaps and connections through and changing the whole way the thing knits together by by finding the places you can make connections and then opening it up into big spaces where we can. And it's been about three years since we started and we've just started construction now, the first phase. It's going to be built in phases. There's something um, amazing about thinking that this first building we're building, which is a, a stone library over a auditorium, kind of a new entrance to the university. We're just getting used to the idea that we know this building is on axis with the Danube. I, I, you know, I go there, I walk along the street and think, axis with the Danube? Did I expect to be on axis with the Danube? <laughs> um, it's romantic. <laughs> the whole concept of time and architecture is what everybody talks about space and architecture, but, but time and architecture. In, in a sense, you're building, you're imagining and you're building for the future and yet you're almost having to project yourselves into that imaginary future to look at uh, at, yeah. the, at the building that will be made and, it, and uh, it's a it's a very interesting kind of play with tense and possibilities well this came about i mean i can't remember how long ago we went to see billy whitelaw in the court in the royal court in london and she's buried up to her waist and then buried up to her neck in happy days but as Winnie and she, she says, I mean, optimistically, uh, she, she says, this will have been another happy day. And this thought of what will have been entered into our conversation, and we have been talking about it <laughs> on and off ever since, including more recently when we went to see Fiona Shaw doing the same performance in Abidaris. And you realise, well, that, that poor uh, optimistic woman buried up to her waist and then to her neck, thinking that somehow or other at some point in the future what she's doing now will have made sense. I can't think of a closer um, analogy to an architect's state of mind. <laughs> you know, uh, especially when you're up to your neck in it, I think you, you have to imagine that the, thing, that the choices you are making now, when you look back on them from this, posi- this artificial position of as the assumed uh, future perfect, when you look back on them, that they will have made sense. So you say to yourself, would that have, would that have been the thing to have done? Um, because, you know, that, that is all you're doing. Is your, a, a building is, is the consequence of that kind of thing. It has that kind of significance. Um, people walk into the door of, um, under the arch of, a slipway in Kilkenny or, on, or down a passageway in Budapest, they're not really particularly thinking about the function for which that building was designed. They're thinking about, or they're experiencing a deeper purpose, a feeling of belonging or connection or convenience or association, which architecture houses. Um, and I think you have to pull back from what's happening mm. immediately and picture it through various changes, including changes of ownership, changes of function. So time time is built in and, mm. and the future perfect just happens to us to be a useful analogy to remind us of that. But there's lots of ways that time, I mean, as you say, it's, co- it's a very complex subject, time, but there are lots of aspects of time that are important in architecture. I mean, one is that one of the things that interests us is how our buildings will look and weather in time. So we tend to choose materials which are naturally finished and which will show their age, which will develop a kind of pattern so that you can tell that they're, you know, because as John said earlier, things only new for a very short instant and after that it's old and so or it's getting older. So there there's lots of ways in which time. And one is obviously that you want your building to be able to coexist in the same time as older buildings is also that it might develop or soften with time. Time is always is always a factor that you're thinking about. We were standing in the street in Sheffield Street, which is the street our LSE student centre is on, with our actually very enlightened client from the London School of Economics. And he was telling a group of people, with some pride he was telling them, that um, this new building 
which is the first building that's been built at the LSE in, in its history, that this new building was so significant that they, they were designing it. They were thinking of it as a building to last 100 years. And I just tapped him on the shoulder and said, Julian, every building in this street is more than 100 years old. 100 years is nothing. Yeah, <laughs> a, drop, a drop of time. Um, coming back to um, the lecture, the, the Reba Lecture in London, I, and you, your youth of the Ogle of Birch, you know, that, that discussion that, that for two people. I wonder, was that in a sense a, a, a deliberate assertion of a distinctively Irish mode, you know, a way of saying uh, we come from a particular tradition and are proud to embrace it and to show it and the best of it in an in, in international context? Yes, I think it was really. Um, I think also... It's we're only the third couple to ever been given the gold medal in the 160 years of its length. So I think that the fact that we do work as a couple, as partners in work and in life, is an important part of our work and important part of how how we think um, our work might be seen. So I think that sense that the lecture was a conversation, and I think actually an ogle of Berta is probably a kind of an argument. So maybe we were. Not as we didn't we didn't want to turn it into a big argument, but the sense that there is a sort of perform performative exchange between two people, and that it is an Irish tradition, was certainly in our minds. We felt that we're Irish people coming here, and but I think we, also, I mean, it was Tim Robinson who mm-hmm. pointed out to us this tradition of the Hagel of Berta in relation to the way we were trying to speak to him on one conversation that we were having. He told us we sounded like an Agile of Bertha. But I think maybe that is true of the way that we, of the value of working in close partnership is that one person goes out and says something and then the other person kind of checks it a bit and then maybe stretches Mm. it in a direction and then the other person gets a chance to blend or divert. So we, we have this balancing, mutual kind of stretching and converging that allows us to come to agreed conclusions which we find, we find it's more interesting than working alone. It maybe takes some practice. Mm. And the buildings emerge in space and time. Uh, Sheila O'Donnell and John Toomey, thank you both so much for joining us on Arts Tonight. Next week, we continue our browsing in the pages of the five-volume Art and Architecture of Ireland series with a look at volume three, on Sculpture. Join us then next Monday at 10. Good night. Arts Tonight was presented by Vincent Woods and produced by Cleon and the Onloon.